Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is T.A. McCann. T.A. is currently a managing director at Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and venture capital firm. PSL partners with entrepreneurs to turn ideas into venture scale companies. Since 2015, they've created over 30 companies and raised over 200 million in funding. Previously, he served as the founder and CEO of Synosis, acquired by Google, GIST, acquired by BlackBerry, and Rival IQ, a leader in marketing analytics. He has also served as an EIR at Polaris Venture Partners, Vulcan Capital, where he built Vulcan Labs and Providence Health Services, focused on quantified health ideas and investments. He also held senior roles at Microsoft Leading Exchange and the Mobile Services Divisions. Additionally, TA serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Washington Foster School of Business and is an active Techstars mentor. Prior to his startup career, he was a professional sailor having competed in two America's Cups. He won one and he lost one. He holds a degree in mechanical engineering from Purdue University where he attended on a full swimming scholarship. Welcome, TA. Good to see you. Thank you so much for joining. I'm excited to chat with you. Me too. Okay, I'm hitting you with some rapid fire. Mr. College Swimmer. I was, uh, did you do the I am? Okay, I'm curious. Backstroke, breaststroke, butterfly, or free? Uh, I, when I went to college, I was best at the I am. And then when I finished, I was still an I am-er and breaststroker. Breaststroker. Okay. And um, I, I'm super curious about that. I swam until like 12 and then I stopped. I had to pick tennis, but love that. Um, what is a bucket list sporting event for you to attend? Oh, to attend. Or you know, I guess, I would... or guests participate in. You could answer both. Yeah, I, I am a total Fairweather fan and a bandwagon sports fan. And so I'm not sure I have a attend uh, type of thing on my bucket list. But I would love to do a multi-day adventure race. And there's a lot of them all over the world as, as a thing that I would like to do. And also there's a really amazing set of things that, that are bike trips that ride all the big climbs from the Tour de France. So oh, over a week's period of time, you sort of go from place to place and then ride the big climb. And then, you know, think about how the actual athletes are doing a hundred miles, you know, in either direction, but uh, but I would like yeah. to do all the big climbs of the Tour de France. I love it. Um, what's your favorite cuisine? Italian. 
I, I can go pasta pizza, pasta pizza all day long and throw in a little beet salad and I'm happy. Carb load. Perfect. Um, okay. Since you're a longevity health guy, if you had to say like the three longevity hacks or the three, like if you're going to do three things, these would be the three. Okay. Uh, one is move toward a plant-based diet as much as you can. Uh, and two would be monitor your sleep and pay attention to it and what things affect it positively or negatively and measure your waking, resting heart rate because your body and your heart rate will tell you when you're under stress or it'll tell you when you need more rest by measuring that. And if you get calibrated by doing it every day, you can start to know like, Hey, I'm up three, four, five beats here on my, based on my normal averages. And that's a very good precursor toward getting sick or being under stress or needing more, more rest. Fascinating. I knew about the first two. I would not have thought of the third. So what do you use as your, is it an aura ring or what do you use to track all this? I use a product called sleep tracker pro, uh, which is just a phone app that lives, you know, underneath my pillow. And, uh, and that will do a fairly good job of, of similarity to aura. Uh, it's not as good as Aura. If I were going deeper on my sleep tracking, and then I would probably move to Aura. I think that's probably one of the best products out there for that. So Sleep Tracker Pro is my uh, is my endorsement. Okay, tell me about a business book that you probably most often recommend. Hmm. I, I'll, I'll recommend one that's probably not, is called A Wild Idea. Uh, and this is written by the founder or about the founder of The North Face. Uh, and, mm. and his sort of first, second, and third acts of life uh, named Doug, Douglas Tompkins. Yeah, an inspiration for sure. What's, uh, I guess, one of your biggest pet peeves? Being averse to writing things down. Oh, like someone else being adverse to it? Yeah, like I would say, great, let's work on a new idea. And I'd say, cool, like, let's pull up a Google Doc and let's, like, let's write it down. And they're like, well, I don't really want to write it down. And so like, writing it down oftentimes is so important, both in terms of forming an idea or putting an idea into the world or getting it out of your head. And so people who get frustrated sometimes about things not happening, but don't take the time to write them down. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Um, what would be three words to describe you as a friend? Okay, I'm going to say engaged, structured, open. I like that. I mean, structured. What does structured mean? A lot of times friends help each other solve problems. Ah, and so you help people get some framework around the way they're thinking. Correct. At least I attempt, at least I attempt to. You attempt to. I love it. Okay. So tell me, because we're just kind of getting to know each other live on the podcast, where are you from? Tell me about your childhood. How did you get to where we are now? Uh, I'm from Michigan City, Indiana, which is right, right at the northern part of Indiana, bordering um, very close to the Illinois border and very close to the Michigan border. There's a little part of Indiana that touches Lake Michigan. So I grew up on Lake Michigan uh, as sort of a very far suburb from Chicago. My dad commuted downtown every day uh, from Michigan City, and I grew up kind of on the beach. And oh, beautiful. it was a, uh, it was a modest sized town, but there was a, it sort of doubled in the summer because a lot of people from Chicago had summer houses there. So I lived there year round, but we had that. And so I spent, you know, my, my childhood kind of in the water or on the beach, albeit in a place like Indiana. Nice. So you learned to swim, uh, 
there in the lake, not a pool. Like that's where you got so strong at swimming. Yeah, both. My parents, my parents were involved with sailing. Uh, and so we had a boat as a kid. And part of being involved with the boat is you need to know how to swim. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so not only did we did I run around my whole childhood with a life jacket on because that was just safety, but also learning how to swim was an important part of that. So, you know, swimming lessons and then swimming around. And then that was a that was a sport that I happen to either have good aptitude for. And so I had early success and early success oftentimes means you just keep going at it. Absolutely. Uh, and so I had relatively early success when I was sort of like nine or 10 years old. And that from swimming lessons to, oh, I'll join the swim team to, oh, I have some success in this now. Yeah. And, you know, that led to, you know, swimming all the way through college. And how old were you when you first, uh, I guess, took out a sailboat by yourself? Oh, uh, I don't know. Eight. Yeah. You know, young. People take sailing lessons here. I haven't had my kids do it, but it just looks so cool. How would you say that that informed um, your time with your family, your values? Because I know that for us, like time on the boat is time kind of in our happy place, like away from the phones, kind of just with water. Yeah. So my, my parents, we had a, we had a 25 foot sailboat. My parents, like lots of the summers would be, or the weekends would be hanging around the yacht club. And a lot of my you know, childhood friends were that. And I was either at the yacht club and hanging around the bigger boats, or uh, a lot of people had small boats that we sailed off the beach. So I was kind of in between those two things. My mom was a sailing instructor. Uh, oh, cool. And so a lot of my summer daycare, as it were, was being my mom was, you know, teaching sailing. And so my brother and I were at the sailing school. And so we were, you know, in the committee boat with her or off on a boat ourselves, kind of sailing in circles. Love that. And I would say the, you know, the things that sailing does for a young person is it gives them a sense of confidence and autonomy, right? You're out there by yourself like on this boat, like trying to figure out how to get it to go from point A to point B. And, you know, there's a little danger involved, but just the appropriate level. And, and when your parents say, yeah, go try that, go get on that boat and try to go from here to there or sail around in a circle or do whatever they've asked. That gave me, I know a lot of confidence as a small young person. Yes. And then as we started sailing more, on the lakes by ourselves, like it was very common. We're like, oh, storm coming, let's rig up and let's get the boats out and let's test ourselves, test ourselves against mother nature, test ourselves against this. And, and it's a little bit of danger, not that much, uh, but a little bit of that. And that danger builds confidence. Absolutely. And it builds sort of aspiration. Like, wow, that was a, that was a really harrowing time that we had, but yeah, we made it through. And I think yeah, as a young I person, you know, we don't give our kids enough chances that where there's, you know, there are real consequences, right? And they're not that level of consequence, that level of, I got to choose that I was going to try it. I got to choose how difficult I was going to make it. And my parents were very much supportive of doing that for both me and my brother is like, yeah, sure. Give it a try. Could you and get did hurt? He, did he compete also, your brother? Yeah. So he was a swimmer and sailor and football player. And so we were, we were all athletic and competitive in our family in that way. But, but sailing is a big part. And that, that exploration was a big part of both of our lives, you know, mm -hmm. growing up. And my, 
you know, a lot of parents were like, oh, you're not old enough for that, or you don't have enough skill for that. And my parents were like, yeah, okay. You got your yeah. life jacket on. Good luck. And what you said your dad went into the city. What did he do? He was a salesperson for a building products company. So if we look around us in almost every room, we're, we're surrounded by sheetrock or wallboard and ceiling tile. And he was the a salesperson who ran international sales for a company called the United States Gypsum, which is one of the largest producers of those products. Oh, very cool. And so when you were little and you were thinking about, maybe you weren't thinking about this, like, you know, call it fifth grade and you're thinking what I want to be when I'm big. What, what did you think that you wanted to be? Or do you remember? Yeah. Oh, I remember. So um, I was very fortunate to live in this town called Michigan City, Indiana. And we there were a lot of really cool, interesting houses there. In fact, I grew up, my grade school was designed by, designed by John Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son. Oh, wow. And as was the house I grew up in. So my house was a John Lloyd Wright house. And on my street, there were Frank Lloyd Wright houses. And oh so wow. I was influenced as an early age of both the geography that we lived in and the way that people built houses on the beach or in the hills or on the top or the bottom. And so I thought I wanted to be an architect. And I had an architecture club at grade school and we would go and draw buildings or draw houses. And so I really had a lot of belief that I wanted to be an architect uh, as a fifth or sixth grade uh, kind of person. And uh, so that's, that's what I thought I wanted to be. And when did that change? I mean, was that all the way through? Like, I guess, how did you choose Purdue? Did you go through the whole um, college recruiting process or do you just look at Purdue? Like, what was that process like? Yeah. So, um, as you know, as a, as a college athlete, you, you really want to have a very good junior year. Yeah. Right? Because that's when you get recruited. And my junior year, I was quite good, but I got uh, pleurisy right at the championship season. So the state meet, I was really sick. And so I didn't perform very well. So I actually didn't, then my senior year came along and I was doing great at that, but I didn't get recruited as hard as I should have because my state championship, the sort of the taper part wasn't that good. Uh, so I had, I was recruited by Indiana and Purdue and a couple of other schools in the Midwest. And it was really important for me, even though we could totally afford it, it was important for me as an independent person to try to pay for my college myself. And so I got offers to, as a scholarship at, at Indiana and at Purdue. Indiana was a much better swimming school at the time. And they were going to give me half scholarship and Purdue was going to give me a near full scholarship. And so I was trying to balance the what's a good college where I'm going to get enough money that's good enough at swimming. And, and I was prioritizing that. And I ultimately leaned into Purdue uh, because of those aspects. And then when I was going to go, I was like, okay, so now I guess I need to figure out what I'm going to study. And a friend of my parents was a professor at Purdue. And he said, do you have any in interest in engineering? And I was like, well, I, what's that? You know, what does that role do? And he described a number of different types of engineering. And he said, are you any good at math or science? And I was reasonably good at math and physics. And he said, so if you have any interest in being an engineer, you should apply and get into the School of Engineering because it's very easy to get out, but it's impossible to get in. And so I said, okay, that's good advice. And so I applied and I got into the General Engineering School. And then by the time I figured out I wasn't smart enough to do it, it was already halfway through my college career. And so I just persevered and ultimately became a mechanical engineer. And was that the right choice? Was Purdue the right choice? Was mechanical engineering the right choice? Like, you know, we, we all have this kind of 
perspective now that we're a little bit older. Um, was that the right choice for you? Well, I feel like now if I look back, the engineering choice served me very, very well, both because I had exposure very early to you know, software development and programming produced one of the ARPANET schools. So we actually had the internet in night in, in the eighties. Wow. And so I had exposure to that. So that's one, two is the engineering approach. If you look at what we do now at Pioneer Square Labs, I mean, we're building a machine to build other machines. I mean, it is an engineering approach toward building startups. Uh, I met my wife there. So that's a very good choice uh, of, of being at Purdue. Had I not you know done that, I might not have met Teresa. And, you know, so engineering mentality uh, and, you know, we achieved pretty well in the swimming category as well, but that was sort of secondary. And, you know, when I met Teresa, I was like, you know, the important things for me are school is important, swimming is important, and you'll be important. And so, you know, those are all things that were served me very well being at Purdue. And did you um, always have a sense of time balancing? Because I think being a college athlete, um, and, and studying something like mechanical engineering can be tough. How did you balance your time at that point? And were you working and how much time were you focusing on? Like, what do I do when I graduate? Yeah. Uh, I, I did not have a job. So, you know, I mean, effectively swimming was the job Yeah, and, and that paid for all of school. So that was fine. Um, Teresa actually had a job a lot. So she, she had to work a lot. So trying to find time to be together was pretty, pretty challenging. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, it's just, it was just forced onto me. I mean, swimming was going to happen. I mean, the workouts were going to happen when they were going to happen. So that was, that was that time allocated. The amount of school work was overwhelming to me, the actual amount of work to be done. And then, you know, you squeeze in a little bit of time here and there when you can, but it was pretty busy and pretty hardcore. In terms yeah. of things done, and I would not have made it through the engineering without one of my college or one of my high school friends named Kip. He swam with me in high school, and we went to college together. And he wasn't quite good enough to make the college team, but we were both in engineering together, and we studied in high school together. And so we were similar students. But Kip would, when I would, we would finish our school day. Kip would go home and start the homework. I would go to swim practice. Then I would finish swim practice. I would have dinner. And then I would come and basically copy half of Kip's homework <laughs> to get up to, to get to the place where Kip was. Yeah. And then we would finish the homework. And then together. you'd take it from there. Yeah. That's and funny. I 100% would not have made it through Purdue without Kip. Yeah. And without him helping me and balancing that time in that way, knowing that Kip was already, already figuring things out and was going to help me at 6 or 6.30 when I got started and work till 10 30 at night and then you know rinse and repeat yeah. but i had that, that friend was... also <laughs> yeah. so thank you kip That's if great. you ever if you ever listen to this thank you kip you may have to send it to kip uh, we'll find kip and send it to him um so what was your first job out of school and who was guiding you through those decisions at that time yeah uh, my first job out of school was with a company called compumotor and is now owned by parker hannafin and i was a field application engineer and so effectively, I got a bunch of training on these tools, which were, think of them like robotic controllers. Yeah. And these were all, you know, applied in factory automation types of settings. And this role was sort of 50% sales, 50% engineering. And so you were given a territory. I was sort of like a manufacturer's rep in this case. 
And I would travel around with salespeople who didn't have much of an engineering background to all different kinds of manufacturing situations. It could be somebody in their garage trying to build a new machine all the way up to some of the largest companies in the world, building all kinds of factory automation systems. And we would go in and, you know, listen to the problem that was being, you know, proposed, the potential solution, the different kinds of tools or products that we had to offer, and then we would have to sell those. So those, those things, which is really fun for me, also very independent. So I was my only rep for my company in Chicago, just was coincidental. I came back to the Chicago area. And so I had to manage my schedule. I had to manage my territory. I had to manage and understand the technical product. I had to manage a bunch of distributors and I had to, you know, had a quota. Yeah. So that's a great experience right out of school. How long did you do that? And kind of walk me through the whole, like the first 10 years. I know that, um, I mean, since I've known you and I'm curious how you even got to Seattle, there's been lots of entrepreneurial bug in you. I'm guessing, and I'm guessing there's a theme in there of independence and uh, entrepreneurship. Well, let's say, I'm going to say that the theme which might run through this is, is thinking about your next project while you're doing your first one or side projects is another way to think about that. I'm a huge fan of doing side projects. Doing a podcast is a side project. Uh, and building companies sometimes is a side project. But, uh, okay, the trajectory. So when I was 12 or 13, should get this date right because it's easy to figure out. Um, I saw a video of a thing that was called the Whitbread Round the World Race. So I was involved in sailing and I saw this. And it's like if you're a mountain climber and you see someone climbing Mount Everest and you think, I want to do that. You have no plan, no clue, but you put it on your your vision board. Like, I want to do that. Like, I don't know how yet, but I want to do that. And I had that kind of on my vision board, as it were, uh, to use an Oprah-ism. And I had that when I was a kid. And I was like, you know, that's something I would like to do at some point in my life. Uh, I go through college. I'd met a number of people in sailing along the way. I now have my first job. I'm living in Chicago and I'm like, okay, so the next round the world race is in 1993. And I graduated college 89. So it's now 1990 and I'm in Chicago and I'm like, well, if I want to do that next round the world race, like how could I do it? So I wrote a letter to a person I know about as well as I know you. And I said, hey, you might remember me. We met a long time ago. Here are some my qualifications. I'm thinking I'd like to do this around the world race. Could you help me? Could you give me some advice? What would I need to learn? How would I build my skills? And could you introduce me to anybody who might put me on this path to go do this thing? And they actually, you know, they remembered me. But I think they more remembered my mom because my mom was a super great connector of people and very affable and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I remember you. And we're, we'd be happy to help you in your sort of quest to do this. But in the meantime, would you be interested in trying out for this America's Cup team? And they're what we're putting together. And I just graduated from college and, you know, and was very much in shape and knew modestly, you know, well how to sail and had been modestly successful in the Midwestern kind of small pond, as it were. And so I was like, yeah, great. So I flew out to San Diego and I did a tryout and I got passed the first time. I mean, like they said, thank you very much. Go home. I said, could I come back and try out again? And I tried it out a second time and they said, thank you very much. You can go home. And then somebody who was better and more experienced than me, like didn't join the team. And so I kind of was picked up 
out of AAA and joined this America's Cup team. And I quit my job at CompuMotor and I moved to San Diego and went full-time sailing. And this is a little bit like joining a startup that's, you know, six guys in a garage. You don't know if it's going to be good. And then you IPO the thing. And this wow. is what happened in this America's Cup, which was we went on to win the America's Cup. And so I was wow. a very small, like I was totally, you know, down the bench and, you know, slowly moved my way up to maybe to the middle of the bench by the end. But, you know, you were there and now I'm an America's Cup winner. And so that's that insane. That's insane. Was, you know, that's all. If you send it to anybody else, Gary, thank you, buddy. Thank you. Uh, because these were the two people who, who helped me, who gave me that chance, who gave me that advice, who got me on that team. And that's how I went from a you know regular job to being a professional sailor. Well, I'm saying thank you because if my kids or anyone that I, I want to go do great things are listening, I'm saying thank you for being one of those people who shows others that there is such a thing as a vision board and setting goals and, and going for it because that's so cool. Just like, I'm, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. Tell me about the, when you said, here are my qualifications, what were those relative to the other people? And then what were the tryouts like? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is where there'll be similarities. And I actually have a blog post, which is called how winning the America's cup is like doing a successful startup. And, you know, I have luckily experience in both of those, but you know, this is like, if you're applying for a job, you're like, Hey, like, I know how to do these things really, really well. Uh, these things likely apply to what you're, you know, hiring me to do. And these are the things that I would really like to do next. And so you're showing a level of interest and aspiration at the same time as a level of skill. So, you know, I was super fit. I just finished Olympic trials and swimming and I had been, you know, successful in the Midwest in a lot of, you know, pre reasonably big races there. So, you know, I, I had some level of qualification and the tryouts were really like, okay, well, I don't know, you seem reasonable, come here and do the tryout, do the work. And that's literally just fading into the team that's already coming together. So it's go to the gym in the morning and then get the boats ready and then go out sailing on the boats and then do the testing. And, you know, they're testing everything from physical abilities to understanding of the, you know, the boat and how you might make the boat go fast to, can you get along with other people? Right. Do you bring any unique skills? So the fact that I had some engineering background was useful. And, you know, ultimately like putting together a startup team, you're kind of looking for that interesting blend of, can this person do a thing we need done? Do they seem to have interest and aspiration to do more? Are they the person who will show up early and stay late? Are they the person that when you need something done, they raise their hand and say, I'll do it. And then you say, do you know how to do it? And you're like, no, but nobody else is going to do it. So I'll make an attempt. Yeah. And I, you know, I give that advice to a lot of people too, is you just get on the team, you know, show up early, stay late and raise your hand. And when something that. is done, you just say, I will attempt it. And if you find a better person to do it, amazing. Great. I'll work for them. Uh, yeah. or if you never find another person having done some of it is better than having done none of it. And that's the raise your hand component. And I, I, I did a lot of that on those early tryouts, you know, show up early, stay late, uh, work harder than everybody else or try to and raise your hand. Hey, who can carry this thing down there? Oh, I, I can. Who will stay cool. and, you know, sponge out the bilge? Oh, I, does nobody else? Uh, me. I will. Got it. Yeah. That's amazing. And so how many years did you do that? And then what transitioned you kind of back to the, to, I guess the real world. 
<laughs> you could be doing that. I mean, you could be like the sailor forever. Yeah. So I, I mean, there are a lot of my friends who are that I sailed with in the '90s who are still doing it, either as you know, still on the boat, uh, and or coaches, sailmakers, somewhere somehow in the industry itself. Yeah. So, and what made you decide to transition out? And what did you do next? Yeah. So I did the '92 America's Cup, then I. I could rinse and repeat the same story. And I tried out and ultimately got on a round the world sailing team. So I did the 93, 94 around the world race. By that time, I was now getting pretty competent, right? I went from like the novice at the end of the bench to being somebody who was desired to be on the team. And I had proven that did the 95 America's cup uh, with Dennis Connor and lost in the finals. So I feel the pain of winning and losing. And then I was hired by Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, uh, to get him into sailing. And so me and some of the guys from Stars and Stripes built a boat for Larry called Sayonara. And we started campaigning that boat around the world uh, and all these different kinds of regattas. And, and I was on a number of different professional teams. So when you're doing the America's Cup, it's like a full-time job. When you're outside of the America's Cup or the around the world, it's more like you're being a consultant. You're sort of you're sort of stitching together two or three different jobs in different locations to kind of fill your schedule. So I was on a number of different teams doing this, including Sayonara with Larry. Thank you, Larry, for, you know, all that you did for me too. Uh, Sayonara was amazing. Larry, you know, afforded us just incredible opportunities to, you know, to perform with that team. And it was, a, it was an amazing team. So I'm going to regattas, you know, all over the world by day. And the internet's starting to happen. This is 1994, 95. The internet is starting to happen. And, you know, people are building websites and Netscape's going public. And like, you know, remember those times. Oh yeah. I was recruiting in San Francisco during those days. I got lucky. Like you're thinking like something's happening here and this is, this seems important in many mm -hmm. ways. It seems like where we are now with AI and generative AI. 100%. It's like the internet was happening. <laughs> I had achieved kind of the big thing off the vision board being the round the world race. And like, you can only do so many regattas in the same place. And you're kind of like, it's a little bit boring. So I was, I asked one of the owners, thank you, Satoshi and Jim, uh, to say, Hey, the internet thing's happening. We don't sail that much in the winter. How about you pay me $20 an hour and I'll build us a website. And I want to learn about the internet and I want to learn how to website. And I don't know whether maybe we'll use it for sponsors. Maybe it'll be cool. Maybe, I don't know. And they're like, yeah, cool. That sounds fun. So I was like always the technical guy on the boat. And so we built this thing for Brady Sailing International and we showed it around and everyone was like, whoa, that's amazing. Because nobody in sailing had a website right. and nobody could, we would go to sponsors and say, well, here's what your boat, you know, your spinnaker with your logo might look like, or if we, and I would just put those up on the web and they're like, this is amazing. So I started a soft, I started a web development business on the side. And I started that with my brother, who's also very technical. And so we started building websites and because I would be at the regatta with all these business owners or people who are in the industry, I started building everything.com in the marine industry. And I built northsales.com and westmarine.com and jboats.com and like all these different websites. And slowly but surely, like we built a pretty decent business. Uh, we started learning how to do data-driven websites with databases behind that. And at some point I flipped over from sailing being the main job and soft labor and the web development being the side project to the other way around. 
So we had, you know, moving more full-time into, you know, running a consulting business and a web development business and just sailing when I needed extra money or it was a really cool regatta. Yeah. And did you keep that? How long did you keep that consulting business going and how was it working with your brother and, you know, what ended up happening with the consulting company? Yeah. So we, we started that in, I think, 94, 95 and by the time it was sort of like 96, 97, we had transitioned out of sailing and mostly into web in, into web development. And then we were both like, wow, this consulting thing's kind of hard. Everybody's mm-hmm. starting these real companies. Like we should start a real company, like not like a software company, not just a consulting company. Right. And so we came up with this idea called HelpShare. And we started working on that in 98. We raised a little bit of money and that was the sort of the next side project. So soft labor was the main thing. HelpShare was the side project. And then at some point those flipped to where we were trying to, you know, make make our, our house payments with the consulting stuff while we were getting- yeah, the you're mitigating off. risk. I like it. And then, you know, that's then, and I co-founded that with Rob too. My brother's name's Rob. And, uh, and so we co-founded soft labor together. Then we co-founded HelpShare together. And, you know, away we went. What was HelpShare? What was the idea and what was the business model? Yeah, the, the, the idea for HelpShare was there's an answer out there on the internet. There's an answer to everything. There's somebody who knows the answer to almost every question you have. There's just no efficient way to find them, to route the question to them, to rate the, re- the response, and in some ways to incentivize or reward them. So we wanted to build a system that found and connected people with questions with answers mm-hmm. and support that with routing, rating, and rewards. That was the idea for HelpShare. And how did that go? Remember Ask Jeeves? Yes, that same kind of time, right? Yeah, Ask I remember Ask Jeeves. Jeeves. That was a client of mine back in those days. That's so funny. So Ask Jeeves would, I would say, was a primarily a traditional search engine with a, you know, a personification of Jeeves on it, where HelpShare was much more about person-to-person question and answer. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to ask questions about how might I do recruiting or talent sourcing or writing a great job description, I, I would want to ask you, but mm-hmm. how do I find you? How do I incentivize you? And let's say you say, make it blue and someone else says, make it green. How do I know whose answer is right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to solve that problem. And that was the idea for HelpShare. I feel like that exists right now. Which company? Cora, like Cora is the closest. Yeah. 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 Cora is the closest to this idea. So we looked at this and said, okay, well, first of all, we are trying to connect people with questions with people with answers. So could we increase the likelihood of that being successful by communities that already exist? So if you had a home improvement question, you might go to Home Depot and or Lowe's to answer that question as would a contractor otherwise. So how do we find the, well, why don't we embed our functionality into a website like Home Depot or Lowe's? or American Express for small business answers, or you could pick the category and you could find the leader and then embed HelpShare into it, which made yeah. it more B2B company versus a B2C company. Right. And so we started that and we're like, okay, that's a pretty good idea. That was actually selling. We were embedding you know, our stuff into other corporate sites where there was already a concentration of community. We signed our first five paying customers. We had raised a couple, you know, a little bit of money from angel investors and my friends. And then we run out to raise money in February of 2000, Oof. that timing. So, you know, obviously the, the internet crash happened immediately after that and nobody was raising money and companies were shutting down and our customers were going out of business. And so 
we went out of business as well and that company failed. Yeah. I feel like though, um, you know, just from being around for a little while now and talking to so many people on the podcast, like you learn so much from the failures, right? I mean, you learn obviously a lot from the successes, but what would you say you learned from that experience? You can't control timing. Uh, and, you know, in that case, I mean, there's probably 50 other reasons we would have failed, but the primary reason we failed is because we were just timed wrong or timed incorrectly. Yeah, the timing or, of that one sounds like the worst. I mean, honestly, that idea though is just like brilliant. I love that idea. I think another thing we learned is I immediately thought that the only reason that people were incentivized was by money. And people are incentivized by a lot of other things. They're incentivized mm -hmm. by status, meaning like I'm the smartest person about this topic area. They're incented by connection. I don't care if you people that think I'm smart. I just like helping other people. I just find value in them asking me a question and me giving you an answer and saying, thank you for the answer to that question. It really helped me along. You know, you find tons of these people on, on like YouTube now for home improvement and all that is like an instantiation of people who are, I mean, some of them, sure, they want to make money from their advice on how to install a air conditioner, but lots of them are like, I struggle to figure out how to install that air conditioner. So I made a YouTube video and I put it up there and I hope it helps someone else install an air conditioner. So I would say those are people who are either... They could be financially oriented. They could be status oriented. I'm the best person who knows this thing. Or they could be, I'll say, community oriented, which is I just want to use my knowledge to help people. Yeah. And the initial thoughts of help share were very oriented toward money. And we underestimated a lot of other ways by which people find motivation and satisfaction. Interesting. Very, that is super interesting. I mean, you've been, a, and I know you had like time at Microsoft. What was your experience like there? There's been so many people on the podcast for Microsoft. How would you describe, I guess, the culture and how has that informed uh, the way that you have wanted to lead and create culture? And um, I guess just seeing your background, you've got startups, you've got big companies, you had acquisitions. Where are you in your... Uh, happy place as far as where you get the most energy? Those are two different big questions. All right. Let me just tell you from a Microsoft perspective. So when HelpShare failed, I thought that I wanted to go work for, a, say, a company of like Series B, you know, Series C kind of company, like Learn. I, I certainly took a lot of blame as a, as a CEO of that company, like, oh, what did I do wrong? And what could I have learned from? So I felt like I wanted to go learn from somebody who'd seen some level of success, but not too big of a company. So I was looking around for 200, 300 people companies in Seattle. And I applied to a number of them and I didn't quite find the right fit. And my wife was doing some contract work for Microsoft and she said, oh, you should, you should go think about Microsoft. I'm like, what? Like, that's a gigantic company. What would I learn there? I want to be a startup guy. And, but she said, well, go talk to my friend, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you, Teresa. Um, and Mark worked on the front page team. So I actually had had a lot of experience with that type of web development tooling and, and stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll go talk to Mark. And Microsoft has a very good way of hiring people where they will say, hire for Microsoft, no hire for the role. So you don't have the right fit or right experience or otherwise, but hey, this person has the right kind of, you know, DNA, DNA for our company. So I did sort of an informational with Mark and he's like, hire for Microsoft, not for the role. And he made intros to other people. And I think I did eight of these, like informal or formal 
and I kind of got into this mode where I got hired for Microsoft and not hired for the role. And at some point I was like, Hey guys, like, do you actually have a job? Cause I kind of need a job. Like I'm out of money. I have a one or two year old daughter at home. Like I need a job. And so I ultimately ended up on the exchange team and I had an amazing manager there named Kevin and Kevin brought me on. He said, listen, you seem to have some kind of startup background and startup DNA. Can you come to this big, well-known business called Exchange? And at the time, it was about a $600 million business for Microsoft. Very well-known, right? That's the email server that at the time, you know, almost every corporate, you know, was using. And he said, can you help us think about other new businesses that live alongside Exchange? So it was very entrepreneurial. So I had this kind of really strong base. I had a thing that I could learn about and I could start to do some like business development slash new business ideas. So I got a lot of opportunity to do that. I also started to figure out like, oh, this is what it means to build enterprise software. Oh, I get it. like, oh, I didn't know any of that. And so I got a huge amount of exposure to the way that which Microsoft builds software. I had no exposure to what meant to be build a global piece of software multiple languages, different use cases, different licensing models, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff. It's like, wow, that's amazing. So I learned about that. I learned about all these sort of roles and responsibilities like centralized marketing or product-based marketing, even just the words, product management, product marketing. I didn't know any of that stuff. So yeah. Microsoft gave me a huge amount of both structurally how you might think about building a software product, structurally how you might think about that on a global level, and then programmatically, like who does what along the way? That is invaluable. I mean, I've never worked at a large company and I've kind of learned from the outside, you know, serving these companies. Um, but yeah, that is super invaluable as you go to build. How did you end up in Seattle to begin with? My wife and I, we finished the America's Cup in 95. My wife and I wanted to leave San Diego. We'd lived in a lot of different places and we were like, San Diego felt a little too small to us. And it felt kind of like retirement for us. We're like, hey, listen, we still have a lot of like, we want a lot more living out there. And so we, we said we like big cities. Uh, we like the West Coast. And so we looked at, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Portland and Seattle. And L.A. felt too big for us. San Francisco felt too expensive. Portland felt too small and Seattle felt just right. It's like a Goldilocks situation. And so we just <laughs> came and I was still sailing full time. And then my brother and, and now sister-in-law moved out a year later. We shared a house in Madrona and we That's built, so cool. built self-labor in the bedroom. And like they, they, we all live together and we're working that startup together. And so we all still live here in Seattle, a couple of miles apart. That's a, I love that story. Is he still in the tech world? Your yeah, brother? He, works, he works for Ernst & Young, EY. Oh, nice. That's really cool. So when you're, I guess, where is your happy place? Are you, are you building? Are you early stage? Um, I know that Microsoft sounds like it was a very entrepreneurial opportunity for you and you learned a ton. Um, but I know people do have this feeling of like, this is me when I'm um, at my best or I'm getting the most energy. Is there a stage of building a company where you feel the most energized? I, I'm totally a glass half full kind of a person. Like I'm a person that can find, I think I'm pretty good at finding a good in any situation. And so big company, small company, like there's all, there's amazing things to learn at each. And, yeah. and so I, I can be happy in both. I think now to answer your question, I'm happiest where I am at PSL in the sense of 
taking a slightly amorphous idea, putting enough structure around it to go find early customer traction, and then getting the team formed around that idea and getting that company up with early, you know, product market fit, early product market fit. And that's where I'm probably the happiest because there's, there's so many choices to be made. And yet you have to make a lot of choices, which feel scary, sort of like, okay, I have to make this choice. And it also moves so quickly. Yeah. That's the so difference. The what difference is, big. what is the, um, I guess, what are the differentiators for Pioneer Square Labs? Like how does Pioneer Square Labs differentiate um, itself from other startup studios and VC firms? Yeah. So from a, I'll start with VC firms and then I'll, you know, then I'll, I'll go VCs and then labs, accelerators, incubators, and then PSL versus others. Uh, so, you know, VCs tend to make investments, but they, and they give advice, but they don't do any work, meaning they're not building product. They're not necessarily sourcing customers. They're not programmatically doing very much work. And because we have a venture fund, you know, I know that. And so, you know, you're making in financial investments, you're giving advice and helping a CEO, but you're not usually functionally doing any work. So that's one that's on the VC side. Um, when you start to think about accelerators, like a Techstars or Y Combinator, they are similar. They have a finite amount of time. They have lots of different good people who give you lots of advice, but they also generally don't do any work. So they say, hey, you should go do some customer discovery and then come back once you've done your customer discovery. If you now contrast that with a studio, we would say, let's go do some customer discovery together and let's go find those customers. Let's do those interviews and let's summarize what we've learned from those interviews. Or you could say, you should go build a prototype of this thing. Well, at a studio, you have people to do the prototype or you can. So we, we have lots of doers in the studio versus just only giving advice. And that's the studio model where, you know, at PSL, we have, we have designers, software developers, data science, go-to-market, operations, recruiting. All of those things to surround an entrepreneur to go help them realize a vision, as well as lots of advice, you know, and experience by helping to make those choices and how long do you have to make those choices and what are the right ones or the wrong ones. And what's the pros and cons if you're an entrepreneur looking at that model? The big reasons why, so if you were first of all saying, I'm an entrepreneur, I have a new idea, I can think about executing this in three ways. So one way is I'm just going to go raise money. Fine. If you can do that, good luck. And I'm, I'm talking about sort of a single founder or a co-founder that's just getting going. So one is if you have the background or the connections and you can go raise money on a napkin, good for you. Maybe you should do that. The second is I could go to an accelerator, Techstars Y Combinator, or I could work with a studio. Let me compare and contrast. So if you are going to do the first one, then A, that's most of the time people say, that's really interesting what you're working on. Go get some traction. And you have to think about like, how do I get traction to ultimately go raise money? And that can take a long time, right? For you and your co-founder to get enough momentum to actually go raise money. Half the time that that happens, the other five other guys who have the same idea now are already ahead of you. Because it took you six months to do something that they did. Either they started six months before you, or they can do it faster, better. So you lose this opportunity on time. Also, if you think about an accelerator, like, great, let's you and I start a company together and let's apply to YC. And we got into the YC and that starts two months from now. And then we're three, three months in YC. That's five or six months that we just had to kind of, now, of course, we're making progress, 
but we just kind of artificially put this weird time into our startup. Mm -hmm. In a studio model, we are really focused on number one is can we help the entrepreneur increase their level of conviction on the idea? It's first C, conviction. You're about to make a choice for the next five or 10 years of your life. Wouldn't you like to get a lot of different perspective and go do a bunch of voice of customer interviews and figure out if the prototype's buildable and think about a go to market? That's going to increase your conviction. Right. The second would be compression of time. So can you do that faster? Can we do what you might take you six months to do on your own? Can we do that in a month? So you compress the time. If you had to say, okay, I have to go do all this operational stuff to start a company. We already have people to do that. I have to go hire people. We have people to do that. So it's a lot about compressing the time. Third is completeness. So when you start a company of all this stuff to do, that isn't really about building the company. Like someone has to set up the benefits. Someone has to set up payroll. Someone has to do business cards. And the entrepreneur is often distracted from doing the real work from that kind of work. But we have people to do that. So we can make the company more complete, more holistic. Um, and then the last is community. So it's lonely doing startups, having done five myself. And you want to have a micro community, which is the people that are co-founding that company with you at the studio. Then there's the studio itself. Then there's other companies or founders who are in the studio itself. So you can learn from them, but they also provide you support. So when we think about the reasons you might do a startup via a studio or an accelerator is you want to have higher level of conviction, shorter or compress the time have a more complete company where the founder can only spend their time on the things that is highest and best use for them. And that you're joining a community of other people who know what it feels like to start a company at that stage. And if someone's comparing studio or labs one against the other, is it all pretty much the same model? Are they, are they giving up or getting the same thing as an entrepreneur? Uh, you could look broadly or narrowly, but you know, the first thing to think about is, you know, does a, is there a resonance with a particular either managing director or collection of managing directors? We're all different people with all different skills. We all have our different styles. Uh, and so usually the entrepreneur is like, oh, I can't wait to work with Greg, you know, on this thing because I like the way he thinks. I love the, his background in this way. I love solving problems with him. So there's just individual personal resonance. And if you look at a bunch of different studios all over the world, of which now there are, there are more than 700 studios in the world now. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, they're all run by different people, almost all of them successful by most measures. And so, but they're all different people. Then you can look at what does the studio provide? So a lot of studios will be relatively small and they may not have all the functional things that I described. So we have functional people to do the work as opposed to just provide advice. Right. There's obviously vertical. So some studios are very focused on one type of company or one type of thing. Uh, and that obviously, depending on your idea, if you're a healthcare idea or an education idea or a hardware idea or a whatever idea, you may have more or less resonance or experience with the types of people who are there. So, you know, I think the big decision first for an entrepreneur is by itself, stand alone, try to get it funded early, accelerator or studio. And then if studio, which ones do I find resonance with the managing directors, the process, uh, or the vertical focus. Mm -hmm. And and in exchange for that, the model is um, some equity share, obviously. And um, is there 
is there like one person in particular that you're kind of partnered up with and that person takes a board seat and that person's super involved, but you get access to the whole, all of the infrastructure. Yes, correct. Yeah. So that's when a I great, about, that's great. I, yeah. When I think about community, so in, in a studio relationship, so let's say you and I were starting a company together, we would start with a business lead, you and me. And like, that's the, that's the beginning of the team. Mm. And as we got some good momentum. We started finding some customer pull. Then we would add a designer and an engineer to the team, like, like our little team, still inside PSL, still a project. Uh, and then at some point we'd add operations and recruiting. And so it's still like a little team, but we're all, mm. all moving forward. And then obviously you're getting advice from all the other people who might be working on other projects, but that's the beginning of your little community. Then there's the PSL community. And then as we, the recruiting team flips on slowly, but surely like you'll replace my people with your people, yeah. right? My engineer gets replaced by an FTE who's your engineer and so on and so forth, but you never lose momentum. Yeah, it's so perfect. Of, it's like a really nice transition. And for all of us who've done startups, we've all probably been in this position where you say, oh, I have this amazing backend engineer, but I don't have a front-end engineer. So the backend engineer can't make progress. Or they, you know, I don't have this, uh, I need all these pieces, but I need those pieces to make, to move the whole product or the go-to-market forward. Yeah. In a studio case, or specifically PSL, which I know the most, is I have somebody in every seat. So you're always moving forward with momentum. And yet the person who's in the seat is ready and trying to replace themselves with an FTE, but you never lose momentum. Yeah. And in, in a startup mode, going back to the raise only money, Let's say if I put $5 million on the table and go, here you go, go forth and conquer, you now are immediately into a recruiting problem, mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if I have the person who's going to do X or the person who's going to do Y or the person who's going to do Z, but the fact that I can, and, and maybe you get the person who does Z first, but not the person who does X, but the Z person can't do it. And then Z and X come along and they don't like each other very much right? or they disagree on strategy. And now you just added months and months. Yeah, of time and lost time. time. Yeah. Tell time. me about the, the differentiators of, as far as the VC arm of the business. So we are Pacific Northwest focused. So that's a very different thing. You know, there's a lot of VCs out there, but not focused on the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Because we have the studio, we have lots of functional expertise. So when a founder who only comes to us on the fund side, and we can work with founders in both ways. So a founder may come to us and say like, yeah, I don't need all that studio stuff. Thank you very much. I'm just going to raise money from you and I'm going to go forth and build my company. We have plenty of those too. Um, we have people who are expert at all the functional skills. So they may say, hey, I'm looking for to hire a designer, but I don't have anybody to sit on the designer loop with me. Can two of you sit on that loop with me or help me source people on that way? And that's very helpful to the founder. Super helpful. Yeah. So we have functional expertise. And then once you hire that designer, maybe that designer is making a choice on what tools they're going to use or, you know, this version or that version. So we can provide a lot of advice because we have not just board level advice, but functional level advice on every one of the functions that is necessary on a startup. So that, yeah. that differentiates our fund from, you know, a traditional early stage uh, seed fund because we have the studio bolted on, you know, the side. Yeah. So they both work with each other. That makes sense. And since you've done, you know, five startups, which is incredible, and you've had some exits and acquisitions and, uh, you know, you've had some significant operating experience, I would imagine it makes you a great partner, great board member, 
um, great also investor because you're looking at it through a different lens. And I'm sure that you're um, very founder friendly personally because you know what it feels like. Um, when you're making these decisions personally, what lens are you looking through? Are you using a combo of gut and data? Are you looking at kind of the, the prior team's history, their, you know, pedigree, um, the idea of the total addressable market? Like what are your kind of things that you, is there a checklist? Yes, there's, there's, there, if we now we know each other well enough to know that there's probably a checklist, there's probably a flow chart, there's probably a, a structure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, at a, at a very high level, I would say we're looking for the same things that every other investor and team, you know, would be looking at. Sure. Team, tech, market, all that sort of stuff. Um, as it relates to me specifically, I place a great deal of effort and value on a person's ability to make decisions, a person's ability to make progress. Um, and a lot of early stage founders are like, well, I just couldn't decide whether I want to be B2B or B2C. And you're like, just choose for now. Mm -hmm. How do you and measure I, that early on though? I mean, how do you, like, right. how do you assess that out in an interview? Well, we, so an interview is sort of looking at their past usually. Yeah. And then my personal process, and this is not necessarily all the way PSL does it, but my personal process is great. Here's some homework. So I love the interviewing with you. I love the fact you're focused on X, Y, and Z. Here's a structure we use at PSL to describe a company. It's called customer value prop feature set business model. Here's an example. Why don't you take your idea and write your CVFB? And I said, and send me a Google doc when you're ready. And then, and then I say, and you know, when we think about it, we are going to ask you and your investors will ask you forever. Why you, why are you the person, best person on the planet to do this particular company? And then why now? So I send you a Google doc and I say, here's do a CVFB. Why me? Why now? That tells me a lot. And then you write it down and then I ask a bunch of further questions and I make some comments in that Google Docs. We're starting to collaborate already. Now you may think my comments are good or bad. You're like, well, that was insightful or that was stupid. Either way, it doesn't matter. But we're already collaborating on your idea, on you as a founder idea fit, as a why now moment, as an ability to describe the company itself that we're now going to try and validate together. And then from there, it's like, cool, like, what do you think the biggest risks are in this business? And it could be customer acquisition and it could be technical. Otherwise, we write a validation plan and then we'll start running one week sprints together. And at the end of that week, we're like, okay, what did we, what do we do? How did it work? And that's where we run this validation process together. And that's when we get a lot of testing of, can you make decisions as an entrepreneur? Can you drive a team forward by making decisions? We get momentum. And if we can get momentum, you know, then there might be a company here. So there's a lot of structure and process of, on the engagement part. And we generally say to an entrepreneur, like, hey, let's date for a month. Let's try to run four one-week sprints. Let's try to see if there's a company here. And if at the end of that, like, we're not feeling it, let's agree to break up and move on, you know, and that's okay. But yeah. at the end, of it, we feel like there's a real company build here. Let's go try and do that together. And that's yeah. kind of our that's the way that we tend to engage with different entrepreneurs. That's that seems like super smart way of approaching it. I would imagine also that sometimes you're like, hey, there's not an idea here, but there's a person here that I want to be in business with. But maybe we just kind of pivot this idea. That's interesting. All the time. 
all the time, time. because yeah. because we run these kind of one week sprints. Yeah, you can get to we were working on an idea together. We get to the end of it, we're like, you know what? We've been trying for three weeks to find do any customers care about this thing, and we're like, can't find them. Or yeah, we found lots of people who said they care, but they don't have a billion willingness to pay. Okay, killed. Or we found this, and we found like nine other competitors who are funded by the best investors on the planet. Okay, killed. Yeah. So then it's, but boy, it's really fun to work with you. And I love the way you think about things. And so let's, what's the next idea? And we've right. done that absolutely a number of times where it wasn't the first idea. It wasn't the second idea. It wasn't the third idea, but it was the fourth idea that we worked on with a person that we really, you know, had chemistry with. And in that way, going back to sort of the conviction part, is we both had high conviction that that was the right idea to go spend the next five or 10 years of our life with. Yeah, past five or 10 years of your life. Crazy. I mean, if you build a big company, it usually takes that long. Yeah. I'm curious what you're kind of, I'm switching gears a little bit. What are you kind of geeking out on these days? And if you could spend all day working on something, what would it be? So on the work side, I, I love working on companies that are in the quantified health space. So anywhere we're using mobile, machine learning, big data, and now AI to improve health or human performance. Human performance for people who are trying to win gold medals and health would be general wellness, health, and or sickness, right? And as you think about the sickness side of this, this could be precision medicine uh, types of things. Uh, cancer, oncology, drug discovery, things like that. And on the human performance side, you know, these are all like how to live to 200, how to get your best, you know, live your best life um, are things that I'm really interested in. And I think we continue to discover more potential solutions and also more potential pathways to solve any number of problems here. So if I could spend all day working on a category, it would be that category. Uh, and and also I spend a lot of time thinking about the machine that we're trying to build. So I'm very involved with lots of other studios around the world. And we obviously are trying to build our own best studio here and every single company as best we can. But then there's also like, well, I don't know, where, how can we learn from other people? How do we share what we're, we're learning here at PSL on the process of building a company, not the company itself. But in order to learn the process, you have to try to do it. And you have yeah. to say, like, why did that company go well and that one not go well? Why did that one go faster versus slower? And how do we apply that learning back into the next time we meet an entrepreneur? How do we assess the entrepreneur? How do we assess the idea? And then how do we ultimately move that through the studio with the highest you know, velocity that we can? Yeah, you were doing so much. I mean, you're doing stuff uh, on a global scale with this, with the studio, You've got your podcast on the side. Tell me a little bit about your podcast. Uh, well, I have two podcasts. So I have one that's called Beyond the Blue Badge. And this is focused on ex-Microsoft people who are founding or investing in new companies. So it's very early stage, either CEOs or VCs called Beyond the Blue Badge. And that's part of the Microsoft alumni network. I feel like Microsoft gave me so much, and this is a little bit of give back to them and trying to learn from the other amazing people that both worked at Microsoft that are now doing their own things. And so I enjoy that podcast a lot. Uh, and then I have, I have done a podcast called how to live to 200. This is all about health, human performance and longevity. This was a side project. Uh, I met a woman named Lauren and I thought that she was amazing and smart. And I said, like, we should work on something together. And so I proposed two or three, four different ideas 
And she said, oh, podcast, that sounds interesting. What would we talk about? And she also had an interest in sort of this health and longevity. And so How to Live to 200 was both an opportunity to explore this category, but equally an opportunity to do a side project with Lauren. And then Lauren got pregnant and Lauren got a different job. And so Lauren got busy. And so the podcast kind of just stopped. And so at some point, I hope I get back to how to live to 200. But a lot of it is, you know, the content, but it's also the people that you get to work with on it. So that's the two podcasts that I've done. We've had amazing guests on both. I'm very impressed. And I don't know how you uh, balance it all. What are some of your time management hacks? Like, how do you set yourself up for a good week on like a Sunday? Do you have some rituals? Oh, sure. Uh, So one is I'm a huge believer in executive assistants, and I have had many of them. Um, And managing a virtual assistant is a huge, really important. I recommend all my CEOs. In fact, I think I've trained four or five of my EAs I give to my CEOs. So they get to know each other while we're doing the studio process. And then I say to the CEO, you should take my EA. And while you're going to do your fundraising. That's very generous. I can't imagine giving up a good EA, but yes. So so it's four or five, I should count. But but I will do it again because it's fun for me to train a new one. And I learn something new from different EAs and how I work with them. But I'm a big believer in EAs. Second is I'm a huge believer in using voice memos with my EA. So after a call like this, I might say, hey, Shahab, you know, draft an email to Shauna with a link to the show notes, go get the AI summary of this and link to three episodes of this. And I get it out of my head into a voice memo that'll be a draft in my email by the end of the day. And that is a, that voice memo with EA combination is really powerful. I'm a big believer in weekly goal setting. And so I have with my EA and myself, like, what are my goals for this week? What are my goals for this month? What are my goals for my quarter? And I do that a lot in a product called Workflowy, which is kind of a simple note-taking bulleted list products. And I use a lot of Workflowy. And then last but not least is I use a lot of text text expansion and keyboard shortcuts. So text expansion is basically everything we do that's repetitive like, hey, Sean, it was really awesome to meet with you. I know we should get together soon. Here's my Calendly link. And I've copied Shahab to schedule time. Like I have that all as a script. So it takes me like two seconds to send all of those repeated emails by just basically keyboard shortcuts in a product called Text Expander. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm literally like, I'm like, can you be my mentor? You're incredible. I'm like, <laughs> I'm literally like, I'm like, okay. We spent, I don't even know how long, an hour, a little over an hour, and I'm already like mind blown. This is amazing. I do have a a text expander. I have a link on my website of called the tools I use. Uh, So at tamccann.com, I have, it's the tools I use and I I, I infrequently update it with these types of things. And I mean, I'm a productivity geek. I love using software to make myself more efficient. Oh, Uh, yes. And these are... I think most of these are probably referenced on the tools I use. Yes. No, this is great. Okay, cool. Okay. My final question for you is what fuels you? Uh, Connection with other people, like making things. Hopefully, you know, we've talked about making companies. We've talked about making side projects, uh, making things. Uh, Gives me a huge amount of energy. I love engineers and designers and like the product development process. Uh, I really like being a manager like whether it's the EA thing I just talked about or people who've worked at PSL to go on to join our portfolio companies. 
I like that people development side and trying to find a way to help them get to their own highest and best use. And it's always sad to see them leave, but it's fun to have them in the portfolio. And so I, I like being a manager and paying a lot of attention to that. Uh, but those are some of the things that give me real energy. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.